0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. I hope everyone's having a beautiful day. I got an incredible show for you. I got two amazing authors, a bunch of incredible questions, and an incredible dynamic that's about to unfold in front of you that I think everyone's going to enjoy. Although I need not give a large introduction to these two gentlemen, I will give a brief one for those who may not have read their best-selling, beautiful books Let me just start with Matt Zeman, an unconventional visionary. He penned the groundbreaking book, Psychedelics for Everyone. In this trailblazing work, Zeman takes readers on a mind-bending journey through the world of psychedelics, breaking down barriers and demystifying the transformative substances. With wit and wisdom, he explores how psychedelics can be a tool for personal growth and self-help, accessible to all who dare to embark on this cosmic adventure. Zeman's book is a roadmap for those seeking to harness the power of psychedelics for healing, learning, and self-discovery, making these mystical experiences more approachable and enlightening for everyone. Shannon Duncan, an introspective sage, unveils the profound insights of his book, Coming Full Circle. In this thought-provoking masterpiece, Duncan shares his own riveting journey of self-discovery and trauma healing. Through a blend of poignant storytelling and deep introspection, he guides readers on a path towards understanding the cyclical nature of life's challenges and triumphs. Duncan's wisdom transcends gender, offering readers a universal perspective on the human experience. Coming full circle is a heartfelt testament to the power of resilience and personal growth, inspiring readers to embark on their own transformative journeys of healing and learning. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here today. How are you guys feeling?
1: I'm doing great. I've uh, been looking forward to this, so I'm, uh, I'm ready for it.
2: Yeah, I've been looking forward to this as well, Shannon. It's nice to finally meet you, and, and George is the great connector. All roads lead back to George, and this is a
0: <laughs> We are. We are in some transformative times, and I figured we'd just kind of jump right into the nest here. There's, there's some interesting things that are happening in the world of psychedelics, and both of you have interesting backgrounds. There's a question that's been dogging me for a little bit, and it's this idea of mechanism of action. We see a lot of money being spent on trying to figure out the mechanism of action inside the brain. I don't thoroughly understand why that's necessary. If we have something that really works for people, although I do understand harm reduction and safety, it seems to me that the money we're spending on trying to find ways of mechanism of action are just, they're kind of wasted. I'm going to start with you, Matt. Like, what is the purpose of this mechanism of action? Like, Why is it, why is it so necessary? Why is it so expensive?
2: Super interesting right now. <clears throat> so in, right near me, I live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Up the street, like a mile, is Brian Roth's lab that's studying um, with the Department of Defense, uh, DARPA's $26.9 million grant to kind of, rem- as I understand it, to remove the hallucinogenic properties of psychedelics, Just fascinating. And then down <laughs> this way, a couple miles, um, David Nichols retired. So um, he's, yeah, just up the street. So we have these two legends of chemistry um, around here. And, uh, and and David Nichols in particular, I think is, is has a lot to offer to this type of question. I think he would say, I, I know what he's saying. Mean, he believes that the, the medical model is the way to bring this to the masses. And to do the medical model in a Calvinistic society, <laughs> we need to have proof. And this can't be for fun and this can't be for pleasure. It has to be for healing and it has to have a purpose. And um and yeah, science is trying to prove out um how things work and to get better at at, at figuring that out. So and I look at that as okay, it's beautiful, great, wonderful. And while we're waiting, indigenous cultures have used psychedelics for thousands of years. We have a mental health crisis, we have a spiritual crisis, we have people f- f- fleeing churches, we have a loneliness epidemic, we have a community uh, of people hungry for community, and we have tools that that historically don't cause a lot of harm. And I would love to see more of them being used for good now. Shannon, I'm turning back over to you.
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, when you were first talking about that, I was I was thinking, well, you know, you could also make sex so that you don't actually feel anything when you do it. But at least that could still reproduce. <laughs> right. It's um, what these researchers miss and the and the reason they're pointing their microscopes in the wrong direction as as human animals and all animals, we learn and evolve through experience. And it is our experience on the psychedelics that does the growing, that does the healing. We have a different experience of ourselves. We relate differently to the traumas that we've, we've gone through instead of, you know, somebody that was abused as a young child, they store that in themselves and always have the perspective of that young child and no other capacity. And that's why they don't move past it. As an adult on psychedelics, you get to Open that up. You get to bring light and air into that dark room and you get to have a different experience of what you went through and a compassion for the young person that you were that went through it. And that's how the change happens. That's how the healing happens. If you take the experience out of psychedelics, you take the part out that does the work. <laughs> you take the part out that where all the magic is. It's just, it's such silliness trying to reduce the psychedelic experience down to something similar to an antidepressant. Well, here's a pill you take. It's going to change something in your brain, and for a little while, you're going to feel better. And just keep buying pills from us, and you'll keep feeling better, sort of. Except you'll lose ninety percent of your emotional range. <laughs> it's just, it's just. It's just silliness. Okay. So yeah, if they want to go and try to figure that out, that's fine. But you know, they're missing the very obvious thing that psychedelics let you learn and evolve and grow in the way that we're made to through experience.
2: Two things on this. And, um, I completely agree <clears throat> when we're talking about the use of psychedelics in practice. And and I, <clears throat> so, for instance, we've talked about the pump and dumps, where they believe it's just a, a and legal ketamine is what I'm referring to, um, and they believe it's just a biochemical reaction. We can put an IV in somebody's arm, we're going to give them some ketamine, and that's going to change them. That's the same model that didn't work with antidepressants. That's the same model that doesn't work with the, many of our medications today. Completely agree with you. I think George was asking, though, about the research around the mechanism of action. How do we figure out... What is happening in the brain? What receptors are being triggered? How do we, um, how do we try to understand using fMRI imaging and, and these different techniques, kind of how these medicines work, so that we can deliver them more efficiently, more effectively, um, and 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 I think that. So I have less of an issue with that than I do with people who it's just biochemical versus biochemical, psychosocial, spiritual which is what I believe mm-hmm. psychedelics are. And I, I completely agree. These are catalysts. These are not cures. These are catalysts for change yeah. um, that help people experience, that help people know in their hearts that they're enough, that they're loved, that they're wise, and that they can take that knowledge and move that forward. Mm-hmm. Um, different than mechanism of action, I think. I'm not sure what George yeah. is going for. but that's yeah.
0: both, both great answers. And I think that there's a bridge here. The reason I bring it up is that it seems to me Searching for the mechanism of action is sort of like looking for the God particle in an accelerator, or trying to find the name of God. Like we're never going to find it. We don't even know enough about the brain to thoroughly understand. Is this the TRKB? Is this the five H two A? What's going? We, we don't know enough. So in my mind, what I'm thinking is, what a great way to keep the world of psychedelics contained in a medical container. Let's like I, I spoke to Brian Roth, fa- fantastic guy. He's never even done psychedelics. And It blows my mind to think that someone with whom is a genius, and I admire all of his work has never really had the actual experience of psychedelics. And in our conversation, when I began talking about psychedelics, he began telling me about a Zen experience. I've never really had a Zen awakening. So it was very it was apples and oranges for us, but I, I felt there was this divide, and on some level, I could see what appeared to be a longingness for the mystical experience with which he's investigating and I don't think that we get people to thoroughly understand psychedelics trauma and the confrontation that happens inside by studying mechanism of action so I guess my question to both of you is I'll start with you Shannon is trying to find these solutions to what's happening in the brain just a way to contain psychedelics in a, in a medical realm and not let it get into the the rest of the world.
1: You know, what resonates with me as you're talking about that is trying to understand the mechanism of how it works in the brain outside of trying to bypass the experience uh, more how Mm. Matt was explaining it, which made a lot of sense is is the effort of trying to privatize it, the effort of trying to corporatize Mm. it, the effort of trying to pull this into the realm of big pharma, where it can be reduced down to tablets that you pick up at the CVS and you have these experiences. That's, um, I mean, but it's also missing the point. You know, if somebody wants to go and, and figure that out, but it's, it's, it, it's baffling to me. I was in this, um, online conversation the other day, they were asking, should research psychedelic researchers have experience with psychedelics? Yeah. And I'm like, well, yeah. How do you, how do you have any grasp of what it is you're trying to understand if you've never done it? Um, I'm like, I guess you can, you can, you can, you can study cyanide without, you know, sampling it to see what it's like, but it's, you know, the psychedelic thing's a little different. It's all about the experience. And, uh, Back to mechanism of action. Sorry, I wander. Um, It's all right. We can go anywhere we want. Mechanism of action. um, Yeah, for for me, the 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 only upside of really understanding that in the near term is it's just going to be used to create um, uh, restricted materials. It's going to you know make Mm -hmm. new pharmaceuticals over using what's already available. Already, there's people you know, privatizing 5-MeO-DMT, coming up with patented versions of that. And I'm like, well, we have it for free. That works great. I mean, I I don't understand what it is you're working towards here other than just more money. You know, it's a new niche to be exploited. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, we learn a lot anytime. I mean, you know, what's the point of going into outer space? Well, we learn a lot when we go out there. So maybe through this research, some really cool understandings of the human experience and the human brain can come out of it. Um, but you know, my cynical brain says, you know, it's it's got big pharma's fingerprints all over it. So, <laughs>
2: yeah, and I, th- I think I uh, think so much of what you said just resonates, Shannon. Um, and I th- I would like to encourage all of us to try to look at this with an abundance mindset, and just mm-hmm. say, okay, they are coming from they're, They're not coming out of malintent. They're coming out of unknowing, and <laughs> in their worlds. They're trying to do the best that they know how to do. Um, So when we talk about uh, a patent to synthesize psilocybin, okay, great. You've patented some specific process to synthesize psilocybin. Does that stop anyone else from synthesizing psilocybin using a different mechanism? No, but using that particular mechanism to create a specific type of psilocybin where dose is a dose is a dose, helps the process along in the medical model and allows some research to continue. So I, again, I view all this with an open heart. It's okay, great, beautiful. If that's the contribution you can make to this, do it, do it. The All of us on this show want more people to experience and to find, to remember themselves, to reclaim their their power, to um, to know that they're not alone, to f- connect to a higher power, to connect to us, to realize that we're not other. Um, yeah. And it. I just think if we, we need to approach it all with an and and not create division when we don't need to create division, great, research away. We love that. Tell us more. That's fascinating. And let me tell you more about um, how this can be done in, in this or or why you might want to. Uh, the example I'll give is a, we've had a couple of doctors come to do ceremony lately. Um, we actually let one come in just as an observer recently. And my goal is to help them see that uh, there's a lot here that they can borrow and they can borrow and make probably more money than they are in the one-on-one model that they're doing by incorporating some ceremonial things into the medical world. And conversely, wide open, if you think there's things we can do, our medical intake and our informed consent and our safety preparations on, on the site and our emergency action plans that we can do better, all means tell us but let's let's not we've created this false division between when in the old days there was just healer and the healer was a medical healer and a uh, and a doctor i'm uh, sorry and a, and a spiritual healer and now in western culture it's two different roles pure science versus spiritual woo woo. okay well if you were to say that psychedelics belongs in the hands of the spiritual people it's a fair argument to say no 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 wait a minute they don't have the latest knowledge of the brain and my body to keep me safe fair enough but if you are to say psychedelics belong in the hands of the doctors only, same argument. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Psychedelics plays in all the spiritual realm and does all these other things that they're not familiar with and they can't keep me safe. So we need a new reconciliation. It's an and between both worlds. And by doing that, we can find a new way that hasn't been done to get this to more people safely.
0: I like it. It's well said. I think it speaks to... It's interesting, the, the, the gap between science and spirituality, between doctor and underground. And it seems it's that same thing. You know, if, if the same way some people in the underground, myself included sometimes, look at particular therapists who, who want to help people who have never done psychedelics, the same way a doctor looks at a person on the underground and is like, well, how much is that guy projecting? How much is that guy's transference happening? You know, and there's something to be said, if I was going to steal, man the argument from the other side, you know, I would say that a therapist who has an amazing personal experience may overhype the treatment potential, you know, they, they may idealize things. So I, I think on some level, regardless of what side you're on, you can see the argument from the other side. And I, I like what you said, man, I think it's, it's a both and, you know, and let me ask you this, since you mentioned the idea of ceremony. What are some similarities and differences between a clinical setting and a ceremony?
2: I mean, it, it depends on the, <clears throat> depends on the intention and the way the medical professional um, approaches it. There are medical professionals that do beautiful clinical work and have uh, in my opinion, mean, again, they 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 care they care about the preparation process and the intention setting. They respect the medicine as more than just biochemical. They create an environment that's comfortable for the patient that is full of love and full of warmth, and they they care about the integration process and where the real work starts post psychedelic. And there's there're beautiful doctors doing that, and there are doctors operating completely legally that are more of the. Come out of the school of medical sedation, and um, and they operate differently. I think the biggest difference between um, ceremony and clinical is is the group. I think um, I think there's real power in the group experience when it comes to psychedelics for many people. Now I get if you are actively suicidal, if you have severe mm. depression, a group setting isn't the right isn't appropriate. But for many many people, a seven on a depression scale. Um, group setting is incredible. My healing is your healing. Your healing is my healing. Energy moves around the room. All the focus isn't on me. It's on us. And the, after the ceremony, the, the sharing of, wow, this came up for me and this came up for me. And wow, that made me think about that is incredible. Not taking away from, it's different than therapy. Um, but it's community and it's a shared experience and it's, um, yeah, I think it's different. Shannon, what are you, I mean, you, you've talked, yeah, you, you've had unqualified please. guides, as I read about in your book, and you've had uh, a- <laughs> coming, <full> um, <laughs> coming full
0: circle.
2: Coming full circle. And what, I mean, what do you think? Well, I, I don't think that the division
1: is purely between a medical model and a spiritual ceremonial model. Um, my own guide, my own beautiful guide that I work with is a licensed therapist and highly, highly educated in working with trauma- but she also holds a very spiritual, energetic-based space for me, and we work one-on-one in that way. There's there's a great time and place to work in a group. Um, processing deep trauma, treatment-resistant trauma isn't often it, but it could be a place to start. It could be a place to get your, um, your legs under you in the psychedelic space, but it's really what... What it comes down to to how deep you are allowing this work to go and how much you're allowing yourself to be vulnerable and exposed is how safe your psyche feels, how safe you feel Mm. on an unconscious level at the level of where this wounding is. And, you know, I tried, I tried some group work and it wasn't for me because I never really felt safe. You know, people who were abused very young Mm -hmm. often have this fear that if I am too vulnerable, I don't know how the people around me are going to respond. So building that relationship with a single guide, a single therapist is a really powerful, it took, my guide and I were talking about this the other day. We just did a, did a journey last Thursday Um, another big one, my journeys all go six to nine hours. (laughs) It's, uh, uh, they're just ridiculous and there's always huge energetic releases and it's just, it's this this thing But we were talking about and she's like, yeah, it took us three or four of these before you really started to trust and let deeper stuff out. And I'm like, yeah, that's just, that's just how it works. It's, it's that level of safety. It's that level of felt sense that this person that's watching me is, taking care of all the things that I would otherwise need to watch for. I need to monitor my environment. I need to monitor my own safety. I need to worry about, you know, if I'm going to purge, if I'm going to aspirate vomit and with somebody there that you really trust and you've got that one-on-one connection, you can let go of all that. You can learn to trust and release and the medicine just goes so much deeper. The experience moves deeper and deeper for more, more and more profound healing. So when you talk about a medical model, and I talked about this a little in the book, if you're in a a professional office and there are other professional offices around you, your likelihood that you're gonna feel safe to be loud if you need to is gonna go way down because you're not gonna know who's gonna hear and how they're gonna respond and what that's gonna cause. Um, you know, if you're sitting in an office and you're, or you're in an office and you're in a, I see pictures of people in zero gravity chairs or on Mm -hmm. sofas. And it's like, if you don't have the room to move, you're also restraining something. And so, you know, you could move the medical model into, uh, into an environment that's more conducive to deep work and what it really requires. Um, but on the, on the other hand, when you get people that don't have any background in psychology, they don't know to shut the hell up. Um, wanna be guides, want to, the, the ones that want to play therapists always want to tell you, they want to reflect back to you, oh, this is what this means. This is your relationship to your mother and that's why it gave you blah, blah blah. And the stuff that real therapists never do, right? They, they just they watch too many TV shows and movies and so they just want to play therapist because it feels very powerful to do so. And that's one of the problems that you run into in the underground. And, and the sweet spot, I think, are people highly trained in psychotherapy but that are also working in environments where they're not shackled by the red tape of the clinical trials and the legal settings. That's, that's just my take on it.
2: Yeah, that resonates um, It's interesting, even in holotropic breathwork, I participated, I did the uh, the GROF breathwork uh, program mm-hmm. with uh, out in Colorado, amazing. But they talk about if you don't have a guide um, with you, you, there's always a part of you that is protecting yourself. Um, you it's need like to have that. a trusted guide, so it's beautiful. Um, the I'll, I'll go here. In, in some of the ceremony communities that I work with, I like this arc that um, that I've been seeing used. Where on day one, you kind of you get there on day one, and you have a uh, you have conversation, you get to know the other people. On the first ceremony day, you do some breath work, some yoga, some meditation. And in advance, by the way, you do a preparation session, intention setting, all that. You then move into a a sassafras day, purely heart opening. One day, purely heart opening. And I look at that as like a practice day. You Mm -hmm. practice surrendering. You get used to ceremony. You get used to your fellow travelers. We typically have four to six musicians that are doing a custom soundtrack based on the energy of the room. You get used to what does that feel like. You, we have a male and a female facilitator, so you feel the the balance of energy typically. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you crack your hearts open, and you feel love for yourself and love for others, and you uh, remove shame, blame, and guilt. And then that allows that evening around the fire for people to start sharing, which then enables the next day. And the next day, again, breakfast, breathwork, yoga, meditation, and then you do a deep dive with psilocybin. And now you get the interconnectedness of all things. You get the feel of the earth, breathe. You feel that you are part of nature and you're not other from nature. And in my experience, people can go deeper because you've done a practice day. You've done a heart opening day. You have that trust. Um, And then you've also in advance, also set up the rules. There is no, this is your inner journey. You, You can cry, you can laugh, but you can't talk to your neighbor. You can't touch your neighbor. And the facilitators aren't there. They're not therapy. They're not there to tell you anything. They're there to hold your hand if you want your hand held. They're there to touch your feet or to, to energetically transfer some, some sound or some waves. But that's it. Hmm. And then um, I find that to be beautiful. And then, and then in some of the ceremonies, we then go on to offer bufo, where if they now – you've, now you've already done two. And unlike people who just drop into a 5-MeO five, uh, five MEO experience with unprepared, you're prepared. You've already done work twice in a row, a couple different days. And now, yeah, you want that 10 to 20 minute conversation with your higher power and you're ready to let go and you're ready to surrender. And then again, I know there's a range of way people react to uh, to 5-MeO. In this model, it's like 100% are sitting Buddhists, pure bliss. Um, and that's with people with um, significant trauma. Um, I mean, a range again—not in active suicidal, not in active high, high, high uh, depression—but again, up to that seven or eight on the depression scale, they do really well in this type of setting. But it's—it's it's a process. It's an arc. It's not a one-day. Let's do, let's get it all done. It's a—it's a multi-day, multi-medicine, ceremonial approach.
1: I'm—I'm I'm curious. Why is a sitting Buddha? experience on five the preferential
2: outcome. It's it in a group set it, it feels to me there's just a lot of comfort and that they're they're not um you're you're completely right. I mean there are people who you need the body releases, you the the primal screamers, the shakers, the movers. Um I know um the purgers. The purgers. Um yeah we have we just I don't and I've seen that not in this setting, but in this setting it's that's hmm. uh, yeah, and then there's a person in Mexico who does uh like he'll do five people in a row with five MEO and he um he has everybody on a blanket and there's four people. And if they start to move, they just lift up a corner and they're moving in their cocoon, and that's perfectly hmm. good. Um, but this I just haven't seen that with this particular arc of this type of ceremony work that I'm seeing that I'm seeing. Interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm. It is interesting. <clears throat> I think that, on some level, one of the problems that we see in this emerging space is the inability to measure subjective behavior. And a lot of times people want to know, like how do you know what's working? I mean, you could look at the the tears of joy coming from the wife of someone or the husband of someone. like that's probably pretty good evidence. But we don't really measure that. Is there a certain is have you have either of you thought about? A way in which we can measure the the subjectivity of these events.
1: I, I can I can speak to my own experience. Sure, sure, please. You know, and um, you know, before I started all of this, I was highly depressive, um, sometimes deep in suicide ideation. Just to get through mm-hmm. my day, it was like a coping mechanism for me to get through my day. Highly reactive, um, I was easily pushed into overwhelm, and I would have big anger come up. To you know, clear the decks to get whatever was triggering me away from me. And as I've gone through that work, that is all authentically diminished. Can I still be overwhelmed to the point where I start getting frustrated and you know, and those old, old those old tools coming back into play? Sure, but it would take it would take a lot. I would have to be really, really, really overwhelmed. Where before I would only need to be a little overwhelmed. You know, I was easily overwhelmed, and I'm not easily overwhelmed anymore. And it's that inner experience of the self that's very different. I have more of me authentically available, and I operate less from a place of fear and a place of overwhelm. How can you measure that? That's, I mean, that's purely subjective, right? And it's...
0: I don't know. I I
2: think there's ways. Sorry. There are ways. I think there are ways too, but I want to, I want to stick with this for a moment. because I think Shannon brings up some things that tie back again to his book. Um, You talked about having a deep experience with bullies when you were a kid and that really resonated. I had that, uh, I had a similar experience. I'm I'm not a fan of bullies. Um, And, uh, and then I also had a father who was an alcoholic. So Mm -hmm. he again loved me and, it could uh, a, a fit of rage could occur between one sentence and the next, and yeah. I just never knew what was coming. Um, and I'm curious. So, so you talked about uh, the, the your reactions. I'm, I'm wondering how you think that's impacted this part of your life, and um, and how you do how you deal with confrontation.
1: That's a great question. Um, you know, this part of my life is so much more authentically calm. It's not a, just after the the Zen retreat kind of calm. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's, it's been enduring for years now and it only continues to deepen. Um, I honestly avoid confrontation. Um, you know, if there needs to be something worked out, I try to find some common ground to talk, to speak from. Um, I'm, I'm where it used to be that I wouldn't take much to get me to lock horns with somebody. It's, it's just, that's the, authentically though, like the last thing I want to have to do. I just don't, I don't maintain relationships with people who are highly confrontational. I just keep my life as simple and clean as possible. That just feels better to me. Um, I don't know if that's answering your question or not. I just, I, I, I seek out opportunities where I can just show up and be myself and, you know, let other people be themselves. And it's just, um, yeah. Before conflict seemed almost necessary. It's almost like a part of me was like happy for it because at least then I knew what was going on. You know, I was always afraid something was going to go wrong deep down inside. And so conflict just let me have something to focus on mm. and uh, conflict now just feels, I mean, sometimes it's necessary. You got to work things out with people, but that's a different kind of, than it is this belligerent locking horns, you know, that, that um, that's so easy to get into. And it's just, that's just not really a part of my makeup anymore.
2: That that all makes sense to me. Um, Yeah, I think for me in the medicine work, I went from, I'm the greatest compromiser ever. If we're going to get, instead of getting in a fight, Shannon, let's, uh, let's work this out. What do you need? You need an apple. You need a banana. We're going to, we're going to figure this out. We're going to, let's, let's cut a deal. We're going to make it work. And I'm just trying to avoid the anger. I don't want the outburst. I don't want the anger. I just want to keep things calm is how I used to behave. And now when I feel, um, when I feel my emotions rising, I'm trying to pause and be like, okay, I've created all of this. I created this scene where now I'm in conflict with this person. What am yeah. I supposed to be learning here? Um, why did I do this? And how is this working for me? And, um, and because I'm the creator of this, I'm not the receiver, of it, I'm the creator of it, I can look at it differently and be like, OK, let's see where this goes, and, and, and then decide how I want to move through this. But it's very different than just trying to suppress the um, emotion from emerging. Yeah.
0: It's it's wonderful to me because I, on some level, I think that that's what psychedelic therapy does, be it self-medication or with a therapist, is it, it enables you to not only confront something in the beginning, but then take that confrontation and see it from a third perspective, where it seems like yeah. modern medicine mm-hmm. allows you to have a Band-Aid or a pill to get through the day, to cover it up with a blanket, where psychedelic therapy seems to in the beginning, force you to stand in front of this thing, but then allows you to look at it from a different angle. And it, it sounds like the, the thread that's binding all this.
2: Yeah, we are a culture that excels in moral preaching and medical sedation, and we spend no time um, or resources facilitating individual exploration of consciousness. We just don't do it. And we want people to get distracted in tasks, and we want to numb the symptoms, and we want to just keep them productive. And when we pause and we say, wait a minute, there's enough for everybody. There's just enough. There is enough. We don't need this much. to eat. It doesn't take that many calories to keep us alive. It doesn't take that much shelter to keep us warm. There's plenty. So this whole scarcity thing is just a make believe construct. Um, and these feelings are real. And numbing them doesn't make them go away. It just numbs them. So how do we take time and, and enable time for people to do this work themselves? And, and find the source and find their, and reclaim their power and move forward.
1: I think one of the bigger challenges is that we've bred a society where discomfort is not allowed. Discomfort mm-hmm. is to be avoided. I used to be a person that any aches or pains, I'm popping some Advil. You know, I'm just not allowed to be uncomfortable for very long at all. And I was, I was actually musing about that recently. I just, I got a buddy that's coming over and doing personal training for me. So of course I'm waddling around with my legs, not wanting to move. <laughs> and, uh, it just never occurred to me that I should go take some Advil for it. It's just, you know, this just dis- kind and I didn't have to go through any mental gymnastics around it. It's just like, yeah, I'm uncomfortable. I did some exercise. I'm just going to do some easy stretching a couple of days. It'll wear off. I'll be back to working out again. And it just, it just doesn't occur to me after having con- confronted so much, so much really painful, challenging emotional material within myself that I should ever want to reduce it. It's like now when I, you know, when I, when I encounter something emotionally challenging in a medicine work session, it's I turn, my sails into the storm. It's just Mm -hmm. instinctive. This is my gateway into go deeper. I don't want to avoid these uncomfortable feelings. I want to move deeper into them because that's where the parts that can heal are. And, um. I don't know, I'm just, I'm just endlessly fascinated by all of this, by this whole process. And one of the things I was really hoping to bring across in coming full circle is that, you know, this deep healing, this real healing is available, but you really have to start working your mind around to the position that the discomfort, the challenge, the the fear, the shame, shame's the worst. I'll, I'll take, I'll, I'll take a Mount Everest of terror over shame any day. It just, it hurts so much to open that up. It's like, it's like trying to swim in a tar pit. Um, but I, again and again, it's just like, even in this last journey I did, I got, man, I got just punched in the gut with shame and I was just almost doubled over. And I'm just breathing and I just, everything in my brain just wanted to shut down and close off from my guide, from myself. I just wanted everything to get really quiet and want anything to perturb that shame anymore. And I have one of these big wheels that you can like roll your back over. It's bigger than a, than a, than a foam roller. It's like this big wheel. And I just got it out and I got my back on it, just opening up and breathing. And my guide comes over and sits next to me and puts a hand on my chest. And we're just encouraging the shame to come out. And oh my God, it sucks. <laughs> it's just awful, right? But it just feels so good to let that out, to keep just allowing these things to have expression because that's where the healing really is. And it's this bringing in this um, this fragile mindset that, oh, I can't ever be uncomfortable really limits the potential of what you can do with psychedelic healing work. And that's why you know the idea of being all up here in an expansive five meo experience you know and i've had those i've had the connecting with god up here uh five meo experiences and they're beautiful and i'm always in there and i'm like oh my god i can't bring what i'm seeing back with me it's just like i understand it all and none of it's coming back with me and so, mm-hmm. so i'm just going to do the best i can to let it soak in right now but then there's this other part where you let this door open and you'll let the five meo deep and then it's almost like it's almost like a sieve and there's The the sand of you is running through there. And anywhere that there's knots, anywhere that there's clots, man, it grabs them and starts working its way into them. And that's where you have these big energetic releases. And that's where that real deep healing comes from. And it's, it's, I don't know, man. It's just, it's just incredible. It's incredible possible if you're willing to let it in.
2: What I really liked about your book, and I'm going to search for some words here. What I really liked about your book is over and over, you kept referring back to the work you were doing on you and how it made you feel and the things that happened in your past and how you were processing those things. And one of my concerns, um, as I think about how my, the culture in which my kids are swimming, the culture in which we're swimming is there's so much attention placed on trying to change the way others interact with them. Um, And and I'm going to be, cautious here but it's it, it's everything from i want you to call me this mm-hmm. to i want you to make me feel safe um there's so much put on um what's the expression it's like it's like i don't feel well so i'm gonna go to the doctor and i'm gonna ask him to write a prescription for my neighbor it's that the focus <laughs> is in the wrong direction and and so
1: that's that i've had a very similar observation that you know we're we're teaching these newer generations to wrap themselves in bubble wrap and have an entitlement that nobody comes over and pops the bubbles. And it's, it's this, this felt sense of fragility that's getting baked into the psyche that I can't tolerate these things. I can't allow myself to be triggered. If I'm triggered, the other person is wrong because I should never meet, be made to feel uncomfortable. And you know, there's, there's, There's absolute validity in insisting on not being bullied. There's absolute sure. validity and yeah. in insisting on not being harassed at work or not being touched inappropriate or at all yeah, yeah. if you don't want to be touched. But then there's something very different that's happening. And I, I, I share the same concerns of you about getting canceled. But <laughs> um, there's, this, there's this other thing that's happening where it's like the world has to cook itself or, or build itself around me so that I'm never uncomfortable. I need to live in this bubble and I'm entitled to this bubble. And this can only happen in a time in 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 history when we're really not challenged by anything. Most of us aren't aren't food insecure. Most of us aren't threatened by mountain lions every day or dinosaurs or whatever. You know, our lives are really easy. We lack challenge because if we were in the middle of a war, I, I mean, I guarantee you, people in the Ukraine aren't thinking about this. They're not thinking about it at all. They're hoping. God, I hope my children aren't bombed today. And so they've got other things that are very important to them and they're not worried about being fragile. And it's a it's a challenging place because my heart goes out to these people that are so fearful of life that they can't let life in. They have to manipulate the world around them to give them what they want. And you see this in, in social media all the time. You know, you get a bunch of... I had a friend who's a, who's a teacher and she said she was at this party and there were these teenage girls and they're all sitting around bored. I mean, they're just completely bored. But then they get together and they take a selfie like they're having the best time in the world. And that's the image they put out to the world on social media. It's just like... Nobody's living an authentic life and allowing themselves to be vulnerable and changed by what comes by. They're living insulated in these shells of falsehood and projecting images for other people to respond to. And that can only leave you feeling dead inside, empty inside. I can't imagine the void inside that they're living with. It is such a struggle that they need to try to keep filling it with likes. I need likes so I can feel good about myself instead of, God, I got up and practiced music this morning and nobody heard me, but I felt great about it. And it's just it's just that kind
2: of difference in my mind. Couldn't agree with you more. This is, um, I think we should write a book like Triggers Are Your Friends. Um, triggers are there, triggers work for you. Like when you have a trigger, what is it that's coming up? How do you use that trigger to learn, heal and grow and move forward? Um, that
1: trigger is your gateway to go deeper.
2: Correct.
1: I say that right up front and coming full circle. I say, look, there's talk, I write in the warning in the front, I say there's talk about child abuse coming up. Mm-hmm. And if you find yourself triggered about it, don't view that as a setback. Use it as an opportunity to learn and grow and heal for yourself. That's why I put it in there.
2: And I don't think we talk as a culture. We don't talk about what are emotions, like what are triggers? These, yeah. are, these are, it's your heart telling you, it's, it's your heart telling you something before words are constructed around it. But there's something there to pay attention to. And it's not, don't make me feel this way. Nobody made you feel anyway. way. Yeah. You made yourself feel that way. So view, why and where do you go with that? I view
1: triggers as a defense of things that are wounded. So I have these insecurities. I have these emotional wounds. And when life threatens to trigger me to have to feel this, I have a defense that is triggered, whether it's anger, whether mm-hmm. it's dissociation, whether it's going and watching porn, watching TV, whatever,
2: grabbing Gamble, some wine, eating, any of it, whatever
1: it's, that's what I go do to get mm-hmm. away from this feeling. And so if you realize that, okay, this trigger is coming up, I want to, to go get a drink or I want to go sit down and veg out and watch TV, but I can turn around and I can go into it instead. And that is my gateway into the insecurity or the unhealed wound to allow it to be explored, to allow it to give it expression. And the more you allow it to give expression, the less vulnerable it feels. And the less vulnerable it feels, the less need for defenses there are. So triggers get less and less sensitive over time. That is, that is the path to growth as far as from my perspective.
2: Is there any difference between kids hoarding likes and adults hoarding stuff? I mean, aren't we doing the same thing? We are all acting that we're forgetting that we live in this abundant world. We're, we're scared of not having enough. So we are in this never ending game of hoarding and we're building kind of financial legacies alongside emotional holes. I think
1: that I think that as a human animal, we're hardwired to mm-hmm. want well, we're hardwired to be a part of a tribe, and mm-hmm. a part of being a tribe is being approved of in the tribe. And so interpersonal approval, we can have this conversation and we have this mutual respect. And I feel good in this conversation mm-hmm. that I'm talking to you guys, that you guys would want me to be here. I feel a part of this tribe, and that feels really good. It feels authentic to me. Likes tend to be a fake. It's a, it's a pseudo form of approval in the same way that pornography is a pseudo form of connection, right? You get this illusion, this feeling of something you're lacking and it, it kind of fills you briefly, but then it's gone. It's like trying to sustain yourself on rice cakes. There's no nutrition in there. And it's um, so you're left with nothing afterwards, whereas a great conversation like this, I'll be feeling good all day about it just because it's I feel like we're having an important conversation, we're getting to connect and it's something real is happening. Um, you know, the world of social media and I just, oh my God, I hate social media so much. I'm just not a fan, but I would never have met you guys and I wouldn't be here talking to you if I Absolutely. wasn't for LinkedIn. Right. So I, I, I try to keep an open mind about it and I just try to limit my interactions to things that feel good to me, but in large, like, you know, Facebook and, and, um, Instagram and all this it's just, it's just peddling in illusions to give uh, pseudo approval or pseudo sense of importance when what you need to do is engage in thing. well not need but what would actually feel much better is is to engage in ways that gives you that for real And, you know, and and, but to do that, you have to risk also being hurt. You can't really have love and connection without also the risk of disappointment and being hurt or loss. It's a part of the package, right? But when you're just going for likes, if you don't get likes for something, you just post something different. You just keep posting until you get the thing that gets the likes, and then you do more of that. And it's just this never ending chase for an illusion. Um, And then it, it takes courage to turn around and just start trying to go for these things for real to fulfill yourself for real. You know, I I think that I don't I think that the likes
0: children hoarding likes or people hoarding likes is a degradation of people hoarding stuff. If you think about the evolution of our spectacle that is society, we've moved from being into having and from having into appearing to have. And it's the same thing. You know what I mean? Like it's this degradation and it's it's. I don't think that the children want to be bubble wrapped. I think that these are the unrealized dreams and insecurities of the people that came before them, putting the bubble wrap on them. Like they didn't ask for that. And I, I think it's unfair in some ways to look at them in that way. Like I, They are forced to grow up in this world. Like We're probably the last group of feral children. I'm, sh- I'm sure in different parts of the world, but at least in the Western world, where you were, you know, we were probably raised on latchkey kids and going Mm -hmm. out and playing in the street until the lights came on. And nowadays parents are going to practice and they sit at the practice all day long and wait for the kids. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it's, it's different than we're used to. And I think it echoes this idea from being into having and having into appearing like children today can have the appearance of being the popular kid at school with all the likes, it's a simulation of it. And in some ways it, it's lacking. Like, so I don't know, does that kind of make sense? Maybe this speaks to the idea of, of, of the psychedelics bringing us back into the reality. Like, oh, all these problems, these triggers that we feel are the world pulling us back into reality. Hey, the, the mental illness, if I pull up my copy of DSM-5, all the mental illnesses in there are not the illnesses of the individual. They're the illnesses the society puts on that individual. And it's, it's weird. Like those, are the, like, those are the things that bond us together. It's not my illness. It's this way I'm identifying with everybody around me. It's society's illness manifesting in me. And that brings us to this idea of us being together, right? Is that, is that kind of a shot at the back?
2: But what do you guys think? there's a lot there there's a lot there i mean you're on the <laughs> one hand you know, i just <laughs> think should call out that we're also when we talk when we when we stay i agree with you george as i often do we grew up with latchkey kids and children of upper middle class and middle class people aren't growing up as latchkey kids today but there are other kids who don't have parents waiting for them after practice um we do have a number of parents who are unaware that they are putting their children up for indentured servitude with our college program and pricing that when you ha- when you force a child to take debt to go to get an education, you might as well sign them and they, then they've got to go work for the for somebody and life changes immediately when they don't have that freedom. It's because they've got to pay back the debt and we don't talk about it as indentured servitude but we have a, a, a lot of that in our country. Um, so parents in one hand are trying, some parents are trying to protect their kids from harm and other kids, they're, they're just, they're doing the best they know how to do without being, um, being aware of the harm. But the, uh, let's say one more thing. And I'll let Shannon go. The, um, I, what's it, Anthony DeMello talks about the difference between a criminal and you is only in what you do. It's not in who you are. Um, we are all, I mean, our government does all sorts of bad things. We might not pull the trigger, but we're complacent. We pay the taxes. Sure. Um, we, uh, it's how these kids growing up with mass shootings with, um, with threat of nuclear war, with the, no concept of truth being a standard, even if it wasn't ever real. But the idea that there is, there is, there is that. How do they? How? Of course, we should expect that to manifest in all sorts of things, whether it's behavioral challenges, or anxiety, or depression, or feelings yeah. of these things. Again, forget the forget the diagnosis, and just the feelings of these things. Of course, of course. When we talk about attention deficit or ADHD, yeah, we have an attention deficit. We have one teacher in front of thirty kids. They don't have enough attention. It's that's not how we're meant to learn. So then we can sedate some of the children. And I'm not saying that ADHD. no, not please don't cancel me. I'm not saying that all ADHD is not real. I'm saying that we are prescribing at a rate that doesn't seem to make sense. Um yeah. and then same with antidepressants, never meant to be decade-long solutions that we're going to prescribe it and then f- renew it in 10 minute wellness visits. And then we're not going to tell people that, Oh, here's a list of side effects. Oh, and by the way, this side effect of sexual dysfunction is a 73% chance of you having, we don't tell them that we just give it to them and they live with the side effects. And we numb the symptoms and we never come back to address what caused the symptoms to begin with. Yeah. And um, yeah, it is. I think I have a lot of um, I have a lot of energy for, for children, for the culture um, It's not, it's again, not malicious. It's not evil. It's just unaware. It's,
1: it's a, it's an adaptation really. Mm-hmm. I mean, given the environment they find themselves in, they've adapted to get their needs met in the way that seems like they can. We all have that need for connection. We all have that need for approval. And when you spend most of your time, when most of your, important feeling interactions with others comes through social media and comes down to how you're perceived over who you really are. You, I think you get a, a an ever diminishing sense of self and an ever increasing need to find ways to present yourself in a way to keep the flow of pseudo connection, pseudo affection, pseudo approval coming in. And it's, um, you know, it, it, as we've been sitting here talking, I've been thinking this may be the future of psychedelic treatment is helping this generation find themselves again. After, you know, coming through their developmental years, learning that it's how people respond to you that's important. It's how people, per, you know, respond to what you put out there that's more important than who you really are. And they're going to come to this sense of this vapid emptiness and it could be that the future of psychedelic treatment is really about these people coming in and rediscovering themselves, relearning who they are and coming back to a sense of wholeness. So, you know, uh, everywhere in nature things tend to break down before they start building back up again and maybe this is just a part of that flow. It's uh, I don't I don't I don't I don't I don't blame the I don't blame the kids and there's plenty of adults that farm for likes. I see it all the time on LinkedIn. It's just um, clearly this is being posted because you're looking for a specific response back to you. It's not information sharing. This is about look back at me, please. Not always, but it it happens, and it's way more prevalent like on Facebook and whatnot. Um,
2: When I released my uh, swimsuit calendar last year, that was just for likes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I missed that. All right, all right. Send me a PDF. I don't think I would get many <laughs>, laughs. Can you imagine? <laughs> I might get a lot of laughing face emojis,
2: yeah. it'd be fantastic to do
1: that. To do a, yeah, that'd be the, the men of psychedelica. <laughs>
2: <laughs> We'd well, waste well, so like... much awareness.
1: <laughs> we made five dollars for the cause.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm. But I think sounds- that is what when I get excited about books like yours, Shannon, it's because you're coming out there and saying, "I'm doing this for me. I'm doing yeah. this for me. I'm doing this for my learning, healing, and growing." You can like it, you can not like it, you can get something from this, you can not get something from it. That's all okay. I'm just going to tell you how how this has worked for me, and yeah. I think that's really beautiful. And I think that's that's the, that is uh, that's important modeling. And if somebody wants to ask you more, great. And if they don't, great. Um, Yeah,
1: Yeah, the therapist, Taffy, my original therapist that I worked with, who's still alive and I'm still in contact with her and I just adore her. And she was reviewing some of the book for me. And I'm like, God, Taffy, I don't know if I can share this. I mean, I've written it all and it felt really good to get it out. It was very therapeutic to write my story out like this. I got to release a lot just in the writing of it. And she told me a story how this friend of both of ours, they originally met in a, um, in a therapy group. And this friend was just so raw and so human that it ended up giving everyone else in the group permission to be raw and human too. Yeah. And that's the thing that really convinced me to go ahead and leave this intensely personal information in coming full circle. Because if I give myself permission to just be raw and human in a world where that's not always well-received or in a world where it can make people really uncomfortable at times, but for the people who are ready, it can give them permission to also be raw and human and look at themselves in a very compassionate way as they approach their healing. Uh, cause a lot of, a lot of healing talk is very adversarial. I'm going to get this bad out of me and I'm going to bring in some good and I'm going to, I'm going to go out and, and, uh, work on a soup line. So I'm a good person. And it's just, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's just about becoming more whole yourself and there's infinite goodness in that. There's all the goodness in the world and with your flaws, warts and all you're, you're good. And it's, uh, that's, that's what I was hoping to share.
2: That's another um that brings up another DeMelo, um demelloism where he talks about there's two types of selfishness in the world. There's things you do for yourself to make yourself feel good. Selfish. And there's things you do for others to make yourself feel good. It's still selfish. It's refined taste maybe, but it's still selfish. And yeah. knowing why you're doing what you're doing um even before taking action is is really an important thing to look at. Why are you choosing to do x, y, and z why do, um yeah, period, thats why I like the the soup kitchen thing made me think of that
1: it's um you know i can't I can't imagine a more important tool to cultivate for any individual than honest self awareness I mean because all growth begins there i mean, if you're not willing to be honestly self aware and own what you see and work with what you got, there's really no room to move. there's no path forward from there, and so yeah. Just being aware, God, there was a, there was a writer, was it Richard Bach? Um, is the degree to your honest, the degree of your honesty is, um, it's something about your awareness or your honesty about your own self-absorption or your own selfishness, right? So it's, it's just this, um, yeah, I don't know, my train of thought derailed. It, it I get
2: yeah, go, George, please, please, please. No, no, no. Well, I was just
0: curious, when, when, we, when we think about awareness and health, like your second book that you recently just published kind of digs into that a little bit. Maybe you could speak to the ideas of that. Was what, was what was it that and psychedelic science came, you're giving out this book for free. I think that speaks volumes of self-awareness and speaks volumes of health. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit about the second book and self-awareness and health and how that came to be.
2: You mean the journal, the The journal, the trip? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I say all the time, I don't, I don't believe psychedelics are a cure for anything. They're just a catalyst. They're just a tool to to, to connect with a higher power and to do deep inner exploration. And then it's what happens afterwards. So I thought it was important to help. Put something out there that to, okay, if you don't know how to set an intention, here's some ways to set an intention. If you don't know how to take an inventory of your resources, here's some way to take an inventory of your resources before the journey. Then during the journey, here are some these are some great things to just capture while you're in the moment. Get it down on paper before it slips away. And then for the 30 days following the journey, when you're in this state of incredible neuroplasticity, when um. Some research says when your mind's returned to a child's mind and, and, and neurons are growing and you have an opportunity, well, here are four activities that you do over four weeks to help unpack. And then here's a gratitude journal you do over 30 days um, because through the act of journaling, you're just paying more attention and you're just putting it down. And sometimes when I don't journal following a ceremony, I miss things. I know I miss things. Um, so I, I just, those, those are just, they're things that have, it's, it's borrowing a little bit from positive psychology. It's borrowing a little bit from wisdom traditions and just putting into a journal. That's uh, again, that's not, there, there's some beautiful other, there are other journals in the world that are way better than mine and, and leather bound and super thick with all sorts of things in them. This is, this is just a, this is a really good, um, starting point for a lot of people. Hmm. Nice. yeah mm-hmm.
0: I think it speaks to the idea of awareness and, I was working with Dr. Jessica Rochester, and she has a really great segment that goes from aware- self-awareness to self-love to self-respect. It's, it's interesting how this idea of the self sort of goes hand in hand and steps up every time. I guess awareness may be the first stage, but it's amazing how much you realize about yourself in a heightened state of awareness, be it through breath work, be it through psychedelics. And I'm curious, I know Shannon, in your book, Coming Full Circle, you talk a lot about self-awareness. You talk a lot about self-experience and what you've learned from that. In some ways, isn't it interesting that our self can be the best teacher? What do you got, what do you think?
1: <clears throat> our self can be the best teacher. You know the the whole proving ground for growth is going into your experience of yourself. It's looking at the things that are triggering you. Look at the things that bring you pain. Look at the things that bring you joy. Look at the things that trigger emotion. And you're starting to understand how your physiology, how your psyche interprets the world around you, right? You're taking in raw data that has no meaning whatsoever. You know, the, the, the light waves that come into your eyeballs do not convey meaning the sounds that come into your ears do not convey meaning what you smell has no meaning. Your mind interprets that, you know, based somewhat on your, on your, well, you know, a lot on your genetics, but then after that it's how experience through life has trained you and conditioned you. So you absorb energy from your parents, you know, you absorb way more from how they really are than the lessons they teach you. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but so you absorb your parents isness, you know, you absorb their, their being okay. uh, and it resonates in you. And so you become more and more like them or a combination of them. And then life experiences change that too. And, you know, the whole thing with psychedelics is it lets you step out of your everyday frame of mind, step out of that usual meaning that you're interpreting life through and just see it from a different, higher perspective often. And so that allows you to to question these things. It's like, wow, God, you know, anytime somebody's a little bossy with me, I get really triggered. And then you just step back and you all of a sudden realize that, well, their behavior isn't about you. And it's not this cognitive thing. It's this felt understanding. It's like, hmm. oh my God, that person is this way with everybody. This isn't personal. And you just kind of unhook it. It starts unhooking, and it'll come back and rehook, and then unhook again. But over time, it's it's less and less engaged. You're less and less triggered by something that was always triggering before, and that's that's really the nature of growth.
2: Or it's also, and it's also showing, <laughs> probably showing. If uh, if they're being bossy, you're probably bossy in some aspect of your life. Yeah. Um, yes. Show what's the expression. Show me a show me a victim, and I'll show you a victimizer.
1: <laughs> right. Um, yeah, that, that that can be true. Yeah, mm-hmm,
2: can be. You um, in your book, you talk about the importance of finding the the right person to work with. And you say something to the effect yeah. of, um, you can't work with someone who hasn't gone deeper than mm. um, then you can't go deeper than the person you're working with has already gone, or something to that effect. It's um. um oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, no. Tell me. Tell me. Tell me.
1: So, you know, the idea is that, and, and this, was, this was written because there are a lot of people trying to find their niche in life by being a guide or a therapist for people while on psychedelics. It feels very cool. Lots of people, I just, I've heard it so many times. Oh my God, I found my purpose in life. This is what I'm meant to be doing. But they don't realize that they haven't done their own work and they don't realize that the big expansive experience that's all up here, it's all cognitive isn't deep work it's 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 profound experiences and it can change you but it's not the same as going deep into your own shadows and that's where you know the real changes happen and so somebody who's only gone this deep in themselves can only hold an authentic space for somebody else to go this deep in themselves so that's the kind of the 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 experience they can offer like my own medicine guide that i work with she's done really really deep work and so when I settle in to do work with her, when I settle in to do the psychedelics and she's going to sit for me, I don't feel any resistance to me going deeper. Like if, if I were sitting for you and you went into a space within yourself that was deeper than I'd gone to myself, I would start being triggered. Mm-hmm. And while I'm sitting there for you and trying to be calm and trying to hold a safe space for you is not a time for me to be triggered, but I'm going to be. And the response is physiological and you're going to pick up on it. If it's not safe for me to go there, it's not safe for you to go there. And so where you can go in your journey is limited. I've felt that so many times working with a previous guide, you know, I would go somewhere and I would say something and all of a sudden he'd be very still and kind of tight. And I would feel it. It's like my psyche's registering. Okay. That's not a safe place to go still. Mm-hmm. And so it's, um, it's, it's just important that anybody serving as a psychedelic guide, especially for somebody holding space for trauma, that they've done deep work within themselves. Because one, you know, especially when you start getting into really deep, really sensitive kind of stuff like around abuse or whatever, the feelings that can be triggered are really unsettling and a person's, a person's um, defense mechanisms to protect against those being triggered are really strong and they'll bring it front and center into the room. And you know, so many people that are offering these services today just haven't. I mean, they went to Burning Man and they had a big five meo experience, (laughs) ate a bunch of mushrooms, and it was a big experience. I'll own that. I've had big psychedelic experiences, ridiculously big psychedelic experiences, and it's just not the same thing as doing deep work. And
2: this brings us back to
1: so many just don't even understand the difference. They don't understand because all of us have this door. It's a door to the basement, right? And that door to the basement stays firmly locked because everything in there is dangerous. The psyche keeps it locked. And until you're willing to acknowledge that door and make the conscious choice that you're going to go through it and allow the psychedelics in, allow the psychedelics into your emotional body, nothing too much real is going to happen. It's all going to be on a cognitive level. It's like, oh yeah, I saw how I'm an angry person and I really don't need to be, but now you're cognitively working on it like you do in talk therapy and you're not going in and really unwinding it at its source. And that's really the fundamental difference. And it's a difference that I would say the majority of people in the psychedelic scene don't seem to understand is there. Um, At least the majority I've ever spoken to. They don't understand the difference because they've never gone there.
2: And it's super important for those listeners who are trying to figure out who to work with. I think you had another line that was super beautiful. Something to the effect of sometimes the uh, the call to help is actually a cry for help. Yeah. And as a consumer, looking at, I mean, the, the, I, I, again, these are beautiful people trying to do the best that they know how to do. So looking at, okay, what is, how far can they go? And, and what do I need? which actually brings us to a controversial topic that when I disagree with you about your book, you, okay. you had a real vehement reaction against teleguides. Um, there's no place for it, blah, 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 blah. Um, I have a slight disagreement, but why don't you go first and express uh, how you feel about teleguides? Yeah, I have very strong feelings about teleguides. But wait, wait during- take it, take, just take a moment though and take the compliment sometimes a call for help is a, is a cry for help. I, I love that line and sure, just, just yeah. embrace was, that for a moment. And now go <laughs> beat me, uh, I, was, I was awful proud of
1: myself for coining that. So <laughs> it's just right oh, did you, it was, was cool. that a line that,
2: how oh, could you, yeah. you knew that
1: line? Oh no, I, uh, I, 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 I I was just proud of myself for having written that. I'm like, hey, that sounds pretty good. (laughs) I'm glad that stood out to you. (laughs) I'll take the approval. Take it. Take (laughs) it. Here's a
2: like. Two thumbs up. (laughs) Uh,
1: (laughs) This feels real for some reason. (laughs) So teleguides. Um, Where I first encountered teleguides was during COVID. And it was during lockdown. And there was people that were sitting with people in real life. But now all of a sudden their income stream was income stream was cut off. And so they started offering telehealth. So they'd be, okay, take your mushrooms. I'll be here on the phone with you the whole time, or I'll be mm-hmm. here on FaceTime with you the whole time. And it's like, are you out of your friggin' mind? You're inviting this person to take psychedelics in deep and they're alone, or they've got their uncle or sister sitting there who have no training in handling somebody that is healed is healing trauma or that's doing deep internal work. And even with ketamine, man, you can open terror. You can open, it doesn't, it's not dose dependent. It's not really even psychedelic dependent. If the, the timing is right, you can go into deep challenging material. And if that person finds themselves laying on their own sofa alone in their apartment with somebody talking to them through their computer screen, they have no support, they have no help. And that is where I have a problem with psychedelic telehealth because you're taking powerful mind altering substances and telling this person that they have support. So they're supposed to be letting their defenses down more than if they were just alone And all of a sudden, they're in a space where they need the touch of a hand. They need somebody there just saying, hey, you are okay. Take a breath. Everything's all right. But instead, they've got a tinny voice coming out of their laptop telling them, it's okay. I'm sending vibes your way. Even though I'm in Nebraska, I've got you. And that helps nobody. (laughs) It's just, that's my problem with psychedelic telehealth.
2: So my challenge is where you're going with this and is... Is it feels to me, a little bit of a slippery slope. So I'm going to just push back. I'm going to nudge you back a couple. You, you've you've yep. had a extensive experience with vape pens. You've done mm-hmm. solo journeys. You've done mm-hmm. many solo journeys. And you felt that you were, you know that doing it with a guide is better than doing it solo. But there have been times when you've chosen to do solo journeys. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the same, I'm not, I'm not looking no shame, no bad, because I've done the same thing. My challenge with, my challenge with saying, this is bad. Telling sitting should not be allowed. I, I, teleguiding is ridiculous. Tell so sitting is is bad. Um, or having sitters who are untrained is bad. Is It's, again, I know better than they know what's right for them. I know better than they know how they want to meet this medicine. I know better than they know what they can afford. I know better than they know what they can... Um, what they have access to. And for many people, at least again in my experience, ketamine is a, it's a starting point. They wanna be met in a medical model. They wanna have a, a prescription so they have source taken care of. Hmm. They want someone to talk to them about set and their, their intentions. And you can get that through the, tele, the tele, um, telehealth. And, um, and 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 even setting can be, that you can follow instructions and have setting okay. Is it as good as having an experienced person? No, no way. But at what, $200 a dose for Mind Bloom or New Life or any of those out there? It's accessible to a lot of people and it's an injury yeah. way. And um, I just I find I I I just get my hairs go up a little bit when it's like that should not be allowed, because I feel like that should not be allowed is what's led to we're not allowed to have psychedelics.
1: Well, I never said that should not be allowed. <laughs> I said I said my experience is that this is a terrible idea based on my experience mm-hmm. working with the medicines. Mm-hmm. You know, what I had done uh, recreationally before and spiritually before I started doing real medicine work, I did that by myself. I did that hanging out with mm-hmm. friends. It was never an issue, but once my psyche was allowing the medicine to go deeper, that's where it gets dangerous. That's where it gets really terrifying scary sometimes and having somebody there to hold that space and anytime you're inviting somebody to take medicine in a setting that's meant to be healing you're inviting the opportunity that it's going to go deep and my words in the book were i think this is a bad idea i don't think that this is something people should do and i even say to the reader I just wanted you to know this perspective so you Mm -hmm. could make this decision for yourself. So it wasn't me saying, this is the wrong thing for everybody. This is me saying, based on my extensive experience doing deep work more than most, I think this is a terrible idea because I know how easily really, really challenging stuff can come rushing to the surface when you had no idea it was coming.
2: That's fair. I get where you're coming from with that. Yeah.
1: So Is that going to stop psychedelic telehealth? No. Is me talking about that in the book going to stop anything? No. But somebody reading it might have a broader perspective on what they're getting into and they can make an informed choice based on my concerns. And that's really anything I said in the book. You know, I speak in absolutes, but I'm just speaking as from my own experience. And I try to be clear about that is that I just I think if you're going to go deep with the intention of going deep, you need somebody there to keep an eye on you.
2: And I think, like, if it's 1 800
1: trip sitter and mm-hmm. you just want to take some mm-hmm. mushrooms and listen to Pink Floyd and you'd like somebody there to talk to, but you don't have anybody around, yeah, maybe that's fine. I, I would for a anymore. lot
2: of people with ketamine, that's it's not again, let's pick up, let's make an imaginary depression scale of one to 10. Yeah, seven and under, you're probably okay with telehealth and ketamine. You get above that, you have significant trauma, you have suicidal ideation. No, it doesn't. I, I get that. Yeah. But there's a lot of people who it's a legal, it's a legal way to start. It's a legal way to process. It's a legal way to turn off that inner narrator. It's a legal way to feel, you know, I, I sat with somebody or I was with somebody, I should say it that way, that um was, had never done any psychedelics, was comfortable with ketamine because it was prescribed. Okay, great. And she, um she said, oh my God, I felt the weight of the world lift off my shoulders. I didn't know how much weight I was carrying. Yeah. Um, shift in perspective.
1: Shift in perspective. Yeah. And
2: that's a beautiful awakening that can lead to hmm, maybe there's something else here that I should be looking into. Hmm. Maybe I can afford more than two hundred dollars or a thousand, whatever academia session costs. To uh maybe it is worth doing a deeper dive with someone who is more experienced and therefore more costly. Um sure. because yeah, this is what else is important to spend money on besides my own health and well being.
1: Yeah, it, it's the, volume, the, the realization can just as easily be, oh, my God, I was molested, uh, followed by a panic attack. And that that is where my concern lies. And that doesn't doesn't happen to everybody. Not everybody mm. was molested, I hope. But, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that can come to the surface and you don't get to predict when it does. It comes to the surface when it's ready. And if you're alone when that comes through, you're alone in often overwhelming emotional sensations, stuff your body has been protecting you from feeling likely for decades. And that is where my concern that I voiced in the book was coming from is you don't get to pick how deep it's going to go? You don't get to pick what's ready. You know, you don't know what the tectonic plates are doing in there, and this could be the big Yellowstone super volcano <laughs> as likely as it is, uh, you know, just a um, uh, uh, level two earthquake here in California. You know, you just don't so know. Which would you and prefer? So that's, my, that's my concern.
2: I have a pre- preference question then. Yeah. Which would you prefer? Someone doesn't do the. I mean, I know this is a this is a false question, but. Nope. go on, do your things. Don't do any psychedelic. Cause, and just, or this could be a good, this is a starting point. And then you have that volcanic eruption for whatever reason. Great. You created a volcanic eruption, but now you're aware of this new thing that you weren't aware of before. And you were just hiding behind your computer screen and your tasks and living a, uh, a less fulfilled life potentially. Um, it's it gets tricky, doesn't it?
1: it is, it's so tricky because oh, tr- I wouldn't I wouldn't want to deny anybody mm-hmm. the opportunity to heal.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: a, and a lot of my the fire I bring to it is my concerns about people missing their opportunity to heal, working with unqualified guides. Even if they're a licensed therapist or a PhD, they haven't done their own deep work, so they can't hold the space for this. So this person's going and going through this whole process, but they're not actually getting what they could have gotten from it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Same thing with, uh, with psychedelic telehealth. Yeah, maybe the volcano goes off, but when you push somebody into what's traditionally called bad trip territory, which are just feelings that are so big, your your psyche doesn't know how to handle them. That in and of itself is traumatizing and that can cause the original wound to lock down harder. I've had that experience happen. I've had it happen with a guide sitting there because he wasn't checked in with me. He wasn't, paying attention to what was going on. He was thinking he's going to Hawaii next week. He's thinking, I just broke up with my girlfriend and I'm really upset. And he's not watching that I'm in the worst space out of two years of working together that I've ever been in. And it was excruciating. And it was only because I had done two years of that that I could hold the space for myself and keep myself safe. But somebody brand new to this, to have something like that breakthrough alone would be terrifying. Terrifying and likely highly traumatizing. Um, and that's, that's really my only case. Is that likely on ket on, especially small dose ketamine? Yeah. It's not likely. Is it possible? It is absolutely possible.
2: It doesn't and so just-
1: I think, I think if people are just informed that some people have this concern about this, this is what they think the concern is. At least they're making an informed consent because nobody doing the the ketamine right. treatments is letting them know you could have a friggin' bad trip. <laughs> you know what people call a bad trip. You could have an intensely unpleasant, Overwhelmingly terrifying experience. It's improbable, but it could happen, and you need to be ready or just, you know, accept that if that happens, we're going to be together. I'm going to breathe. You're going to breathe. We're going to get through it just fine. Something, but people are going into it uninformed. And it's um, that is where my concern is. So making an informed choice, then people should do what they feel is right.
2: Yeah. And you do go into le- good length and depth in your book on the risks of unqualified guides. And again, it's not that you shouldn't work. It's, like anything there's a learning curve and uh, you're going to get people in the beginning of the curve and people at the other end of the curve and you've got to kind of find your way through it. And what's
1: super good though, right? Is it's not, it's not a job people should be learning on. You shouldn't be learning how to be a guide by trial and error with other people's psychology if you want to be a guide you go and you get some basic psychedelic psychology training you learn how to listen you learn how to be present you learn what transference and projection is so you can recognize it and not get tangled up in it you learn how to let hold a space to allow somebody to come to their own conclusions which many people who are not trained in psychology can't bring themselves to do they they need to justify their presence in the room so they want to psychoanalyze and it's it's just it's just a mess and then you know, from there you could go and you could work in groups as a um, as an assistant. So you're working with actual qualified guides, but you're watching how this is done. You're getting an energetic, um, an energetic uh, education on what it feels like to hold space for another person. And then, you know, at some point you can start saying, okay, now I'm qualified to work with somebody, maybe not with trauma, but we're going to start here. Somebody who doesn't recognize that they have trauma and I'll start working my way up. There's a way to do it. But so many people are, man. Burning Man was awesome. I want to be a shaman and yeah. hang out their shingle, and all of a sudden they've got people coming in to sit mm-hmm. with them, and they're doing real damage. I've, I've, I've met the people offering this, and I've met the people that have been damaged, and it's, it's real. It's a real thing.
2: I, I think we are completely aligned with that, yeah, and um, the Cs get degrees there are <laughs> a range of people who come out of these programs that are better than others. Yeah. And they get, and there's hopefully they get better over time. And uh, it, it's not that they're not thoughtful. And it's not that they haven't gone through the steps. They're just not taking to it as quickly as others. And, um, and again, as there's so much to learn as a consumer, of psychedelics, whether it's in the above-ground medical model, it's in psychedelic tourism, it's in the religious freedom uh church model. There's a lot here that we just don't we are not taught in school about no. this. So no, it's a lot. And it's I, I guess I'm I I just want to be cautious in in trying to put up any barrier. Sorry, not any barriers, but in putting up when we start putting up some barriers, it it it's all of a sudden we've kept out. We've kept out a lot. Um, when we start putting up some barriers, we Sometimes were not. We allowed. should. I mean, the, I, should. I would
1: say that a good percentage of people practicing psychotherapy, just traditional psychotherapy, have no business doing it. They there just are prescribing antidepressants or prescribing drugs for these things. I mean, there's just there's so much misinformed practice happening at the expense of the people seeking help. But it's just with psychedelics involved, the stakes get way higher defenses come down people are more open they're more easily affected and they could easily leave the experience worse off than they went into it and yeah, that's just that's my big concern is let's let's identify what qualified is and how you get there maybe you don't need to be a legally licensed therapist to be a really good guide i've met some that are you know, I, I, you know, my, my current guide is a, is a therapist and is highly educated on handling trauma, but she's also done her own work, which makes all the difference. Uh, she sounds
2: incredible. Yeah, she sounds amazing. But I, I guess but, I but, wonder about certification. Do we need to certify at the guide level or do we certify at the container? Can we set up mm. a process where the container is what's important? Okay, so we're going to do X amount of people. And if there there needs to be a male and a female, and there needs to be this, and then these are the action steps, and every and we certify the container, um, hmm. which could make this process faster to get to more people, and it's less individually dependent. The one-on-one work is where it seems to me that it's challenging because who the hell knows what's being said, who's being touched, what manipulations happening on and on in your yeah, ceremony. Risk With multiple people, multiple eyes in the rooms, multiple facilitators, multiple guardians. I'm actually, you know what? I've been,
1: I was compelled away from doing any group work for a very long time. I've been doing deep guided medicine work for like four and a half years now, almost monthly. Mm -hmm. And in that entire time, I only did one ayahuasca ceremony early on and it, it kicked my ass. It kicked my ass. And I don't know if it was in part not held well. I thought it was held well. Everybody seemed to know what they were doing. I knew some of the people there, but it's not advised for trauma. And I was clearly trying to process trauma. Um, But I've come around to feeling like I'm ready to engage. My guide has been recommending to me for a while, like when it feels right, you know, go try to do something where you're less in control put yourself. And so I leave in a month for a seven day ayahuasca retreat in Peru. And I I'm only going to this particular facility because I know somebody who takes veterans down to work with these guys. And so I feel very comfortable that I know what I'm walking into had long conversations with the, one of the owners. And so I feel good about going. And, and I, and I agree with you. I think that there's great power at working at the group level and where the one-on-one stuff is really most powerfully necessary is in really delicate especially early life trauma Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of veterans are responding beautifully beautifully to ceremony and groups and my guide is a part of a group that is taking veterans through and she got to help shape the program so there's this lengthy process leading up to it so they're all getting prepared but they're also building a community so this cohort they stay together even after all the work, and then they come together and they do the work together. And then they do their integration um, online, but together as they're talking and working through things. And so they're supporting each other, plus they have the support of the therapist. And it's just, it sounds like an amazing program. And I think you're right. I think to reach the most people, the group paradigm is going to be the one that is most accessible. And especially if you can get a sense of community and your community comes together once a quarter twice a year, whatever it is that works, but there's familiarity. So when you go there, you feel more safe to open. You're not in a room full of strangers over three or four or five sessions. You're allowed to go deeper and deeper because you're more and more safe Mm -hmm. to do so that I I think there's, there's huge potential in that.
2: And we're not talking about it. I'm not seeing a lot of discussion about the power of group in the psychedelic conferences. I'm not seeing certifications for container holding. I'm not seeing um, I'm just not seeing a lot on this particular topic. And I think it's, I think it's a, uh, it is an opportunity for the medical professionals to make more money per hour and yet still bring down the cost to the consumer. And it's an opportunity for the, and it's more effective, I believe for the participant. Um, let, let me, let me jump in here real fast.
0: Cause I think what <laughs> you're speaking to causes, um, I think there's a pattern that happens when the instrument becomes the institution, then the corruption mm. sets in. And if we look at certification, right, like this, here's an instrument to make this thing work, but then it becomes institutionalized. And now there's a lot of people coming through, the institution gets corroded. So with certifying the actual group, certifying the container, would the container be something that evolves? It seems to me that that would be a way to keep the instrument sharp instead of having it get corroded. You know what I mean? If if the person sets up the instrument, the institution and the institution evolves with it. Does that kind of make Absolutely.
2: sense? Absolutely, a thousand percent. And as best as different best practices come out, you share it with the container, yeah. so it's it's not you don't lose the institutional knowledge when one person walks away. You still have the latest greatest medical intake form. You have the latest greatest informed consent. You have the latest greatest emergency action process. You have the latest greatest. These are the safety things you have to have on site. You have the latest greatest. greatest these are the way you you deal supplements. You have the gr- latest greatest preparation integration process.
0: But that's where the corrosion sets in because as soon as someone decides they're the expert in something or as soon as we have someone set up, okay, this is the guy. All of a sudden, that's where the corrosion sets in. Like shouldn't there be a process like similar to the ceremonial setting where there's lineages or something? But mm-hmm. it, just seems, it just seems to me that as soon as we get something set in order, it's going to begin corroding instantly. How do you stop that corrosive nature from happening or is it even possible?
1: I, I think that a part of certifying the container, if you're going to have this, this group process is that the, the guides themselves are the people, you know, cause you'll have, you'll have actual guides, but then you'll also have helpers who are maybe aspiring to be guides mm. and they're there to learn mm-hmm. they're there to support. Right. Yeah. Um, but but the, yeah. the, 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 s- mm. the qualification of a guide in a, in a, in a group, I think are just as essential because the same narcissism can creep in the same, uh, guru shtick can creep in that it does with one on one <laughs> guide. And, you know, healing with psychedelics is isn't medical. It's it's a it's a soul healing. It's a soul to soul healing. And, you know, people are wounded often in relationship and it's in relationship that healing happens. Mm-hmm. And if you've got somebody unhealed holding space for you while you are so vulnerable, you're vulnerable to their wounding. You're vulnerable to being impressioned by their wounding, and mm-hmm. so, for me, just I, I love this idea of the group model, making it all very accessible. But it's yeah. we need to we need a way to make sure that these these people that are holding it, that are serving the guide, have themselves done their own deep work. It's not enough to be highly educated. It's not enough to have done a thousand ceremonies. What have you done in yourself and how do you bring that energy into this container? And that's, that's really, I think one of the most important parts. And that is what keeps it from corroding is that these people continue to do their own work. They work Mm -hmm. amongst each other, whatever it is, but nobody is being set up as the, the guru. Nobody is being set up as the expert. The healing is not happening because of anybody who's facilitating this, the healing is happening because these people are, are facilitating a psychedelic experience and holding a safe space for these people's, these humans' inner healers to do the healing. The, the corrosion comes in. The corrosion mm-hmm. comes in with the ego. That's yeah. uh, the corrosion comes in with the ego, and the corrosion comes in with money. And mm. so, when the ego or money are the most important thing, that's when it's going to start to corrode. When the healing of these individuals that show up is the most important thing, you have a free flow of uh, of uh, opportunity and possibility.
2: The, um, the Sacred Plant Alliance <clears throat> is doing some beautiful work with their members. And again, it's they're not taking new members, and it's tricky. But what, one of the things that they do is they... One of the conditions of being a member of that association, as I understand it, is you agree to put a phone number, uh, make a phone number available to all members that should they feel like the ethics were violated in the delivery of that ceremony, that here's a number you can call and you can report it up. And hmm. I think that notion... Is really powerful. I, I, I've been yeah. advocating for a. Uh, I've been advocating that someone needs to create a psychedelic uh, arbitration association. Oh uh, God, yeah. That yeah. Uh, we need these. We and and it doesn't need to be one. Have four. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Let's have four ethical bodies. But I, I I like the idea that different containers have one thing. Is you agree? One of the best practices is, yeah have an extra set of eyes on this. And if I'm doing things above board, I'm not corroding and I'm not getting into the guru stick. I should have no issue with that.
1: Yeah. But when
2: I don't want the extra set of eyes, I'm afraid to have a a number to call up. What are you up to? Yeah, exactly. So I like, I love that. It happens in the dark. It happens in the Mm -hmm. dark. And I, and I hope that, uh, I hope that they continue to do more beautiful work and I hope that they're able to expand that work out, And I hope that someone else listening to this is like, Oh, well, I can create an ethical hotline and be a resource for some other people. There's, there's room for more. I mean, it's so young. This is so, it's how yeah. ha- we're coming out of a prohibition. <laughs> there's so much opportunity yeah. to, to play a meaningful contribution in the evolution of this. Um, yeah. We haven't had a anything in mental health since the invention of the antidepressant. And again, i and I agree with you, Shannon, this is not medical. This is, this is internal self healing process, but Holding that space and holding that space well is so, so important. So important. Yeah.
1: It's
0: fascinating to me. You know, if I shift gears for a moment and kind of take us on this other little tangent, I was speaking with uh, Dr. Erica Dick about some of her work and the historical nature of psychedelics. And we touched upon Huxley, but we also touched upon this weird sort of relationship between eugenics and psychedelics. And when I begin, like on some level, these things seem to rise together. And when I start looking at modern medicine about, you know, the the CRISPR and the idea of, um, you know, custom babies and all these things, isn't it interesting? that This technology seems to be arising with psychedelics again. And, like, there's no real connection, but they seem to rise together. I wonder if you guys have any thoughts on that.
1: Well, it seems like they, they hinge on, you know, what's the maximum potential of a human. Yeah. You know, if yeah. we, you know, if you have these wounds and they're holding you back from, from what it is you can really do to heal is to allow more of your potential to be realized. Um, eugenics are tricky. I, you had posted about that on LinkedIn and I had <laughs> some talk about it. It's like, you know, I don't, I don't know how I feel about humans being bred like prize poodles, uh, but maybe, uh, maybe gene therapy has something to offer. <laughs> and it's I uh, I don't know. It's just such a, it's such a, interesting thing because you could definitely bring out uh good, the, the better traits that allow for better survivability or better adaptability. But I don't know I've, who gets to decide what eugenics are. Applying? I don't, I don't know that I want to hand those okay. reins over to anybody. I think I'll just, you know, keep rolling, rolling the dice and seeing who's born and making the best of it.
2: Yeah. I, now, I agree you think, with you. Yeah. Tell me George.
0: Are they, is it two sides of the same coin? you know, when we talk about science versus spirituality, on some level, it seems to me that eugenics, at least in the lab, is trying to do what psychedelics can do for us organically. You know, when we when we try to use eugenics to get over different types of diseases, you know, not all diseases, but it seems a lot of the diseases are, are hmm. on some level, you know, made through society. I, I think maybe psychedelics can help us get over those, problems organically. So I'm wondering maybe that's the connection.
2: So let's, let's maybe take a slightly different angle on sure. this. Sure. <clears throat> sure. If if we believe that we are spiritual creatures having a human existence and that I am not my body, I am not this, is there room for scientists to figure out how to make my body live longer, how to make my arms stronger, how to make my sight better? sure but that's not me that doesn't change the way i feel on the inside um we uh we as a culture we spend so much time worried about what we're going to need financially when we enter this active dying process so much we have to say we have to say we have to what, what's going to happen in this final piece that we choose not to be alive when our bodies are most capable of living can this um yeah, I think there's a... Again, I think it's another and, great. And you mm-hmm. you can find a way to help keep my body stronger, lasting longer. That Those pieces of me, um, less disease, beautiful. And a lot of people in this community who are doing this type of work are feel to me to be healthier than the average American kind of... We kind of know. It's like, mm, maybe we should eat some more salad. Maybe we should take a few more walks. Maybe we should... We don't need to be tense every moment of every day. We don't need to butt heads and to, to, to approach everything with confrontation. We don't need to believe anybody's attacking us. We don't need. It's a. It, it, I think there's all sorts of benefits from that as well. So I, again, I just put it in the and category. It's if that's if someone else wants to make their contribution to the world and gets excited about slicing genes and trying to figure out those things, beautiful, great, do that, amazing. And have you thought about who you are? Yeah.
0: I think they can work hand in hand, and if one of the things that I like to to use in my journeys is psychedelics and human growth hormone. And on some level, mm-hmm. you can look at HGH as a form of eugenics. Like I think the two go hand in hand. And when we think about body and spirit, we often mm-hmm. hear those things together. We often read the literature, whether it's in sacred text or whether it's in a bodybuilding magazine. You know, these two things go hand in hand. And I, I think that it's something for people that are beginning to try different modalities in the psychedelic experience. I I think that, and of course I'm a truck driver. So just let me throw that out there right now. I think that HGH is something that people should be looking at to layer with psychedelics, because I think that you're, you are, you are in somehow comprehensively enhancing what psychedelics are already doing. And that's just based on stuff I've read, but I think it's a, it's a way to look at eugenics and psychedelics walking in harmony instead of at odds with each other. And I think that there are more solutions like that. Maybe they can work together. Maybe the chemistry are, are working together in some way. So I wanted to bring that up and just kind of throw that out there.
1: It's not an angle I've really looked at. I've been layering in um, GHB with other medicines uh-huh. okay. as a, as a matter of practice. It used to be ketamine, but like uh, this last journey I did was uh, GHB with uh, the Strong dose of MDMA, about 200 milligrams of MDMA with a 50 milligram booster um, and then some (laughs) 5 DMT in there. And, uh, you know, not only does the GHB calm down the, you know, so I'm not all cracked out on the MDMA with Mm. the amphetamine effect. So it calms it way down. I stay very clear. uh, But GHB uh, is supposed to release uh, human growth hormone. It's why mm. uh, bodybuilders were uh, getting addicted to it was they were using it all the time to get the h uh, the hgh release, um, but I wasn't doing it for the hgh. But I wonder uh, now it's making me curious what uh, what possible benefits might be getting uh, might be coming from it just uh, inadvertently.
0: Yeah, it would be interesting to have um, some of Matt's background and in, and in, in what's going on in the brain, and so maybe some people at Imperial College or something be looking at these neurofeedback because I, I I do think that those things got to go hand in hand. Shannon, you, you, you must be one of the most experienced people when it comes to layering. When I read through the book and I listen to some of the things you're saying, you're one of the most, in, in my opinion, you're one of the most well-versed people on this idea of layering. Maybe you can speak to some other ideas about layering. Is there a certain mm-hmm. particular layer that you have found to be effective for your trauma or certain types of traumas?
1: Well, it's, uh, you know, it started with my first guide. So, you know, we started with 5-MeO-DMT and then we did MDMA, uh, worked with some mushrooms. Then we went back to MDMA and I did some 5-MeO-DMT on the way down. That was my, my first experience of of layering was uh, i think i had actually encephalated at that time so i got a nice long experience mm-hmm. <laughs> with with the 5-meo dmt and it was it was incredible and it started teaching me that wow when you layer these things together you get a new experience so you're creating a new drug almost mm. um it started to become commonplace that i would do some some sublingual ketamine and then take the MDMA or the mushrooms or whatever I would do. And the ketamine would open me in a way that allowed those medicines to go deeper and give me access to areas that I didn't have access to before. So it was a really powerful experience. And I've Can continued... you give an example of that? I'm sorry to cut you off, but can you just for the people listening, yeah. can you give an example
0: of like something that opened you up where you couldn't go deep before? Like what would that be? Um,
1: yeah. You know, ketamine with mushrooms. It's, you know, to have, um, keep your arms and legs inside the car at all times. So the roller coaster comes to a stop because it's, I remember that I was on the mushrooms. The first time we did it, I was on the mushrooms and I would, I was, wasn't used to ketamine. So it was dropping me almost into a sleep state briefly and it would open something. I would feel like I was coming up to a door And then terror would push me back away from the door. So I'd be like, and I was just like this back and forth, this back and forth until finally the door opened. And it's like, oh my God, here's all this fear. Here's these things I fear. And oh my God, I think I was molested. It was like one Mm -hmm. of the first times that door got kicked open where it was just really clear to me that, holy crap, this was a real thing. This really happened. And it was locked away in a really profound way. And mushrooms by themselves hadn't gotten me close to that door. MDMA by itself hadn't gotten me close to the door, but something to deeply relax my body, to allow the muscular armoring to relax, allowed the mushrooms. And I do this, that's mycelium, by the way, (laughs) allows the mycelium in deeper. (laughs) And, And, uh, it's just a, it's just a powerful experience. Um, you know, MDMA is such a beautiful tool, um, but do too little and you don't really get in deep, do too much. And the, the amphetamine effect of it is overpowering. Mm-hmm. And so you put them together and all of a sudden you've got this incredible heart opening, but you're not, your heart's not racing. You're not gurning and clenching your jaw so powerfully. You're not talking a million miles an hour. So you can actually settle in and, and do some work. Um, my, my most common, um, my most common, uh, routine for doing my own medicine work is I'll have some kind of a grounding base. So I'll either have GHB or, which is a, a shamefully underutilized medicine in the psychedelic scene. It's, I'll talk about it more if you want me to, but that or ketamine, which calms my body doesn't, doesn't quell fear. It's not like taking a Xanax. It's not about hiding from anything I'm feeling. It just opens me. It opens me in the face of fear. And then I'll take either MDMA or mushrooms, or I'm a big fan of 3MMC. 3MMC is a a less known psychedelic that is very similar to MDMA, but your brain stays way more clear. You're present in the room with the heart opening whereas with MDMA you're in a fog <laughs> you're you're just you're just in a foggy ocean you're riding the swells and what happens happens and it's fine but 3MMC is this incredible medicine and so ketamine and 3MMC I'm just open and I'm talking and I just, whatever my intentions were for the session, I just laser focus. I always go there. I don't have to think about it. Just all of a sudden I'll start talking about these things and having these emotional releases. And then usually as everything's starting to calm down, as I'm over the peak and coming down the other side, I'll usually work with uh, uh, vape pens of 5-MeO. And that is just whatever was left that was wanting to release that day gets released. And it's always powerfully energetic, you know, almost always purge, almost always have a lot of movement, almost always have a lot of verbalization. But I always know at the end that, you know what, what I set out to do today, I got to. And so it's just, it's, it's a really powerful way to work. It's, it's not for the uninitiated. It's something you want to work up to. You want to be really familiar separately sure. with everything that you're working with, but then you can understand how they're working together and what it's giving you.
0: Matt, you've been, you spoke earlier about a process where people come in and they have a day of holotropic breathing, and then they have a different ceremony with, with mushrooms. What is your ideas on, on layering and what are some specific incidents that you have found to be beneficial?
2: If you were going to ask me what I would recommend for my sister, Mm. I think a multi-day, multi-medicine sticking to one medicine at a time. Mm -hmm and just kind of working up, starting with MDA or MDMA, if you don't have access to Sassafras, moving into psilocybin, moving up to Bufo. Just a beautiful arc. I agree. I also think there are times when that's not that much time, that much commitment is not accessible. And I do think the combination of psilocybin and MDA or MDMA they they work really well together. Taking either whether you take the longer acting first and then you throw in the the others or vice versa, it's just it's a beautiful stack. Um, mm. I am my knowledge of this. I've seen practitioners stack without telling people what the stacks are. Mm. Don't love that. Um, I'm hesitant to get into too much into the stacking world only because it's already i believe as the and i'm using the, the church model the 200 plus psychedelic churches it's hard enough to say okay we are standing our ground so we're doing this as religious freedom we are doing this not as therapy we are there's a history of these medicines for spiritual connection and um and i think when we get into the kind of serious advanced skiing that Shannon's referring to. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a different, it's a different level of, uh, it's, it's just, it's not for the masses. Right. Um, and I believe yeah. these ceremonies are for communities and for many, many types of right. communities. Um, yeah. and there are also, and then there's just one other point I'll touch on as much as I love psilocybin and MDA or psilocybin or MDMA, It also excludes people from, with different um, medications they might be taking from participating in those. Many people on an antidepressant can take psilocybin, not so much with MDA or MDMA. So again, when you talk about community ceremonies, how do we think about accessibility? How do we think about access? How do we think about making everybody feel a part of this? Um, So just, those are things I think about in the spiritual spiritual place.
0: I I guess those would all go into certifying the container too. Like those are all brilliant ideas that would be in that landscape of trying to certify a container like that. Like it sounds like it's done a lot of thinking on that.
2: Well, I am sorry go ahead Jan.
1: Oh I was just gonna say for people who just wading into exploring themselves with psychedelics, I really like the sound of this where you do mm-hmm you you walk them in slowly and you give them these layered experiences and there's there's no way i would layer up somebody brand new <laughs> the psychedelics i mean one psychedelic is a life-changing nuclear bomb going yeah. off in your brain right and i only do this layering because i do very nuanced work and i've developed a level of self-awareness to know exactly where what i'm doing and where i'm going and you know i only talk about it in the book because it's it's interesting right and it's just it's where i've come to and it's a place that other people might come to and most probably never will most will never need that in order to keep going deeper past just increasingly intensifying defense mechanisms but if i were going to recommend recommend somebody that i care about that's mm-hmm. interested in a psychedelic experience i would send them to something like what matt is describing because that is a powerful way and being in being in being in group and establishing a relationship with the group and wading into the altered experiences, I think, is a beautiful, very safe way to do it. That's um, and and you know, not giving people overwhelming experiences is the key for them learning how to navigate that space to be able to move into more overwhelming or challenging experiences later.
2: Johns Hopkins has actually done some research on the uh, the combination of psilocybin and MDMA specifically and uh they talk about how it reduces the uh the the more challenging trips. Now I'm not sure we want to reduce the more challenging mm. trips that gets into a whole different discussion. Yeah. But it does um it can make for a more pleasant trip which again as we're talking about people's first experience, people's second experience. It's um it's kind of a gentle way to wait more gentle way to uh to wait in the water. And of course, this goes with all the caveats, there's there's risks to all of this. And then as Shannon said earlier, we don't know what's gonna come up, and we're all doing the best we can, and and the yeah. person needs to come in with eyes wide open, and if it's not an enthusiastic, yes, it should be a no, and all those disclaimers. <laughs> all those disclaimers. And, um, yeah.
0: yeah. Like, you no, you it's know, interesting. Um, a
2: lot Go ahead,
1: George.
0: It's interesting. A lot of us are speaking to this idea of using psychedelics to heal trauma and when i've read both of your books both of you have overcome a lot of trauma you found these medicines to do it but i'm wondering might there be this new thing it seems to me when we look at the the landscape there's a large portion of people who need it not to deal with the trauma that they've already faced but trauma that they're about to face and that the end of life seems to be something very Mm. beautifully used for these particular medicines what can can either of you speak to that? I mean, I, I know people that are facing this and would probably really benefit from a psychedelic experience, but I don't know how to get involved with them or or move it forward or really anything about that. Do you Do you want to take that one, Matt? Start.
2: I'll say I'll, I'll jump on that to start. <clears throat> so we yeah. have this beautiful. There's there's a beautiful um, event here in in a small town outside of Chapel Hill called Pittsburgh. and it's called Death Fair, and it is this beautiful <laughs> um, uh, celebration of death. And people, thousands of people come, and they talk about grieving, and they talk about healing, and they talk about green burial, and they talk about all things around death. And I'm speaking at it this year, and um, I'm speaking at on two perspectives. I'm speaking about the research that's been done with psilocybin and people in the active state of dying and how beautiful this can be. It doesn't change the diagnosis, but it changes the way they experience this this, this final chapter of this particular existence. And I speak about it. I'm going to speak about it for the people related to the person and friends with the person and how powerful psychedelics can be for them during their friends or loved ones um active state of dying and then the third way is for people who've already lost somebody and the use of psychedelics as a way to process what's mm-hmm. happening. I think there's there's so much here um in this population doesn't have time to wait and see if an antidepressant is going to work. And even if it did work again, we're back to, you've numbed a symptom. You haven't changed an outlook on this existence. You haven't changed their belief in whether potentially their belief on whether there is a, a life after death there. There is this a, a one in warm food is, or is there a continuum here? There's so many things that psychedelics can open up for again, people in the active state of dying and the people that love them. And I, I'm, 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 I'm a huge fan of that work and I think uh, I think more of it needs to be done and I wish that um I mean there there's a there's a death doula or a mm. community that I know does a lot of work in the space um in a way that hospice can't but maybe I wish they could and I hope they can at some point in the not too distant future. It would yeah. have been I mean I just can't imagine when my mom was dying I just can't imagine what this would have meant for her. To have had an experience with this and i can't imagine what it would have done for me and my sister and my stepdad mm. to have been able to uh, to have a different understanding and did not i mean i did not realize it not believe that she is gone forever did not believe that there is no god because who would do this did not pull all the stories the narratives that i told myself for 30 years yeah it's, i think it's super powerful medicine in the death and dying community
0: there's that saying that something along the he who dies before he dies never mm. dies. And when mm-hmm. I see people I love, like I, when I look about my mom, she's, she's made it. She's accomplished so much. And she's secure and all these things, but she's so worried about the people around. Obviously, people around her age are passing away, and she's so worried about death that she's mm-hmm. failing. It seems to me on some level she's failing to live out everything she's earned. And so when I think about that phrase, that he who dies before he dies, never dies, it seems to me psilocybin or some of these experiences can give them the rest of their life back. You know, I don't know that. I'm not on that. I'm not at that doorstep there. But it seems to me from some of my particular journeys that people that find themselves with a lot of anxiety, be it death or the death of a child or Mm. uncertainty, you know, it it seems to be something that, that gives their life back. And i I want, I want to learn more about it. I'm, uh, thanks for bringing up those things. I'm looking forward to looking into them. Shannon, what what do you think?
1: Yeah, I don't have any direct experience with uh, working with anyone or doing that specific work, but I can tell you that it's a part of the reason that I want to go to this ayahuasca retreat. Mm. I feel like I've come to a level of healing within myself. There's still trauma stuff to, to dig. There's just going to be, right? But it's not right. like it was but I'm starting to also have a lot of existential questions. I'm also starting to, I've been very mindful not to allow my psychedelic experiences to turn into a spiritual bypass where I just latch onto notions of the divine and ignore all the stuff that's unhealed in me. I wanted to heal first and then open up into whatever spirituality I'm gonna find myself in, whatever sense of my place in the universe I'm gonna find myself in. And this this ayahuasca retreat is meant to be a part of that. It's me reengaging the world after having been so myopic, um, in my uh, in my personal growth work. And so I, I I think it's beautiful work, and I'm very curious what I'm going to learn from myself about death and life and my place in the in the flow of it all. Um, and I thought it just that's really interesting that you're going to speak at that conference, Matt. It's such a um, I've understood psychedelics yeah. to be a powerful tool to that end, but I don't have any direct experience with it yet.
2: Yeah. I'm I'm so looking forward to it. And it's, and, and I love going back to the community and to, um, again, one of the other reasons I'm a huge fan of, a uh, of community experiences is like the intergenerational work done in com- group settings is healing for everybody. Yeah. So I've seen yeah. um, a few ceremonies ago, we had an 80 year old, dad and a 79 year old mom and a 50 some year old son and then we've had 18 year old sons and 50 year old dads and um it's just it's just beautiful and uh, Mm -hmm. and to bear witness to someone else going through that process and to have again to hear to hear the perspectives and uh, i i journeyed once with with uh with one of my nephews uh 22. And um, and afterwards, and again in the community and in a ceremonial setting, I said to him, you know, I've looked past you a thousand times as just a goofy kid at Thanksgiving, and I didn't respect you. I didn't see you on your. Tra- I didn't see you as a fellow traveler. I didn't see you struggling. And he put in so much work in this uh, ceremony. It was so beautiful to watch. Um, wow. But I think we, yeah, we learn in watching these different generations. We we can become more aware of ourselves. What. My, again, my healing is your healing. Your healing is my healing. And yeah, we are all connected. We are all might be different waves, but still the same ocean. How do we, uh, Yeah, I love all of this. I like yeah, that really different is- wave, same ocean. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Nice. It's fascinating. Hmm. Well, gentlemen,
0: we're coming up on two hours here. Both of you. <laughs> amazing, man. This flies by. I, I'm so it's thankful amazing. to get, to get both of you in one room and, Have this conversation and you know, before I let you go though, let me let me start with you, Shannon, then we'll move to you. Matt, where can people find you? What do you have coming up and what are you excited about, Shannon?
1: Uh you know, mostly I'm just promoting the same message from the book. I just want people who bravely seek out help in the psychedelic realm. That one who bravely seek out help in the psychedelic realm to be met with actually effective help. And that's, uh, that's, that's my big push is consumer education, but also education on the level of the people who are, uh, the people who are serving as guides and offering these services. And, and and truly I only desire to be of service. Uh, you can find me. I'm on LinkedIn, as you guys know. Um, I'm on the other, social media platforms, but I don't, I don't do any of that. Somebody else does that for me. I can't, I can't bear it. <laughs> um, I'm at shannonduncan.com. You can reach me through there if you want to. And the book, audio book and ebook are all on Amazon and all the major platforms, if that's of interest to you. And if you run a school or something like that, I've been donating a bunch of books to uh, schools that are better that are mm-hmm. certifying people just so they have this message also to consider in their, in their curriculums. So, if you're running a school or some kind of training program for guides, and you'd like me to speak, or you'd like some books, I'll ship you a few cases of books, no problem, free of charge. That's
2: Fantastic. beautiful. Very that generous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. I'll footnote you. <clears throat> this is <laughs> <giant>.
1: <laughs> awesome,
0: Matt. Um, you, you you have a the mm. one event coming up that you spoke about briefly, but maybe you can speak to what what you have what else you have coming up, and what you're excited about where people can find you?
2: yeah, i'm I am trying to uh, normalize this discussion as much as possible. when I say this discussion, it's these discussions. It's the discussion right. on mental health. It's a discussion on a, the the um, prescription epidemic that we live in. It's a discussion on psychedelics. It's the discussion on drugs. It's all of these discussions um, and to normalize it to be just I'm I not a I don't think I, I project as a typical regular drug user and I am. Um, so I'm speaking at Wonderland and hosting a panel of people telling transformational stories. And these are people who I don't, I don't think that there's a woman who started a group called moms and mushrooms. There's another woman who lost her husband unexpectedly and um, went through a, a psychedelic ceremony 11 weeks after his death. Um, there's a, a, technology, chief technology officer of a a large company who's really found his voice and fought imposter syndrome using connecting, reclaimed his spiritual connections. And and, uh, another person who was a banker for many years and uh, ayahuasca transformed him and he ended up getting involved in all sorts of things ayahuasca 20 years ago and it's completely changed his trajectory. So it's just this beautiful panel of people telling their stories. Um, I love the speaking, I did, I was speaking at the mental health marketing conference two days ago and, um, I'm speaking a bunch of like entrepreneur groups and I, just anyone who's looking for information on this, I'm, I'm happy to come and speak and, uh, and to share this knowledge and to create conversation around this. Um, I, I, I try not to be so didactic that this, I know the way, no, these are just things to think about as you're, as you're going through this process. Um, Matt is my site. I do answer anybody who writes me through there. I love it when people reach out and ask questions or ask, uh, for, uh, assistance as they're figuring out their journey. Um, I have LinkedIn is I'm very active on LinkedIn. Um, I, there's a lot of Instagram activity. I do get the questions that are asked, but I kind of stay away from the, uh, actual platform from, from Shannon or like Shannon was saying. Hmm. Um, yeah, so that's, uh. That's kind of all things with me, and then I have the two books. I have uh, psychedelics for everyone, um, and then I have Beyond the Trip, which is a preparation and integration journal. And uh, there's an Audible of the uh, psychedelics for everyone, which wildly, Sean, I don't know if you've made an Audible yet. It it is out. It I mean, it's wild to me. Every month, how many people are doing the Audibles versus the uh, the print books? I just yeah, I didn't actually- know who would do that.
1: I actually, uh, I actually got the Audible of yours. That's how ah, I went so through fun. it. And yes, I have a, I, 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 uh, went to a studio and recorded the Audible mm-hmm. audible for uh, Coming Full Circle as well.
2: It's wild. It's wild how many people choose to read that way. It's great. Amazing. People, people like the audiobooks. People like that. the audiobooks. Yeah. And George, you are, a, um, again, what a treat that you organized this and connected uh, Shannon and yeah. me together. And I just appreciate your questions, your enthusiasm, your... All of this that you do, not just for this call, t- this this show today, but I mean, you're just show after show. You ask great questions and you bring uh, bring information to light that that wouldn't be there. So, so grateful for you, my friend.
0: Yeah, you're just saying that because it's
2: true.
0: Man, I love you guys. I'm super stoked that you spent time with me today. I know you guys got to go. Everybody, go into the show notes. Check out both books. They're a wealths of knowledge. Go check out each individual site. Listen to what they're saying. Listen to their journeys. You'll learn so much from both of them, such a wide range and such a wide grasp of, Not only where we've been, but where we are, and I think it foreshadows where we're going. I'm really excited for the future, and I think that both of you are playing a gargantuan role in it, and I'm stoked to get to be here with you today. So thank you both very much for your time. Hang on briefly afterwards. I'll speak with you briefly. But ladies and gentlemen, I hope you are as mind-expanded as I am today. I hope everybody has a beautiful day, and that's all we got. Ladies and gentlemen, aloha.